Well, I want to encourage you tonight. My assignment tonight is to just motivate you to leave here tonight ready to charge hell with water pistols. And that's what I want to do literally tonight is motivate you. I want you to take your Bible tonight and open it to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. I thought Jared was going to preach my sermon a moment ago, but I think he just laid a wonderful foundation for what I'm going to share. Before I do that, can I take just one point of personal privilege and share something with all of you that uh, I want to share with you? This really doesn't relate to the message. Uh, but many of you through the years have been blessed by the ministry of another wonderful evangelist named Junior Hill. Uh, Junior Hill has been, in my opinion, the greatest evangelist, uh, at least in my day. Uh, I know Billy Graham was wonderful, but at least local church evangelist was Junior Hill. And Junior's health has been declining. He's now 85 years old. His health has been declining. His mobility is pretty well gone these days. Um, and he hasn't preached, but I think one time in two years, partly because of COVID and mobility. But Brother Junior is going to come out of retirement for one last sermon. And that is next Monday night at the closing message of the Alabama Baptist Pastors Conference. Now, it's going to be at the First Baptist Church in Decatur, not at Whitesburg. It's at First Baptist Church in Decatur. And uh, you don't have to be a pastor to come. Uh, you, they won't even know it. You, but if you're just a lay person, if you know anybody, he's going to be honored that night. And I, I would say more, but Brother Junior's health is declining pretty rapidly. And uh, even, and I'm quoting him and Carol, this will probably be the last time he ever stands to preach. So if you know anybody that has been touched by his ministry, you have. If you can be there Monday night, the 15th, November the 15th, First Baptist Church Indicator, 7 o'clock. It'll be a wonderful night, and I think it would be a great honor to the Lord and to him. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, a very familiar passage, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist. Some, Elias, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, let me just pause there for a moment because I want to show you something that's not related to the message, but it's an important part of the text. In that verse, Jesus said, Peter, you didn't have sense enough to know what you just said. You literally uttered words from the throne room of heaven. But if you count down just a few verses after Jesus has told them how he's going to suffer in verse 22, some five or six verses later, Peter takes Jesus aside and I think he probably want to say, remember me, I get the messages directly from heaven. It's not going to happen, Lord. And in verse 23, to that same Peter who spoke from heaven in verse 17, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. I throw that in because you can be used of God in one moment as a spokesman for God. And if you're not careful and if you don't guard your heart, you'll be a spokesman for the devil the next moment. That's free. I just throw that in. All right. Back to verse 18. And I say unto thee, thou art Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell 
shall not prevail against it. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I read a story some time ago about an old country boy who was the first one in his family to ever go to college. He didn't know much about college or going to college, so he had to rely on his counselor. And his counselor suggested that he just take some basic courses his first semester. And one of the courses he suggested is that he take Biology 101. So he signed up for the course, and the first day of the class, the professor came in and gave them somewhat of a, uh, what they were going to cover over that semester. But he said, now, I need to tell all of you that you're going to have to do a major experiment in this class. You're going to have to find an animal. You're going to have to observe that animal, change something about that animal, observe what happens, and make some more changes and see what happens. And ultimately, based on your research, draw a conclusion. So the old boy got some more information about that experiment and started wondering, what can I do? And he started thinking about the big bullfrogs at his, you know, his daddy's farm. And so he went out one day and he caught one of those big bullfrogs. And he thought, now I've got to observe some, this animal and I've got to make some changes and observe and then reach a conclusion. So he set the bullfrog down, and he looked at the bullfrog, and he said, hop, bullfrog. And the bullfrog hopped four feet. So he took out his knife, and he cut off one of the front legs of the frog. And he set it down and said, hop, frog. And the frog hopped three feet. So he wrote in his journal, a frog with four legs can hop four feet. And then he wrote, a frog with three legs can hop three feet. So he cut off the other front leg, set the frog back down, and said, hop, frog, and the frog hopped two feet. So he wrote, a frog with two legs can hop two feet. Took out his knife, cut off one of the back legs of the frog, set the frog down, and said, hop, frog, and the frog hopped one foot. So he wrote in his journal, a frog with one leg can hop one foot. Then he took out his knife and cut off the last remaining leg, set the frog down and said, hop frog, and the frog didn't move. So he said a little louder, hop frog, and the frog did not move. He got as close as he could and as loud as he could, he said, hop frog, and the frog did not move. So the old country boy wrote in his journal, a frog with no legs is deaf. <laughs> now before I go any further, let me tell you that was probably a hypothetical story and no animals were harmed in the preparation of this message. <laughs> but when I read that humorous story, I realized that that young farm boy made some observations, but he reached the wrong conclusion. We're living in a day when I think a lot of people are looking at the local church and they're making some observations, but they're reaching the wrong conclusion. Many are saying today, 
In our day of modern technology, we don't need a local assembly of believers. We don't need to come together. Why, we can stay at home and watch it on television and we are, are on the computer or we can listen or we can read. There's just no need for the local church anymore. Then others are observing that, well, yes, there's a need for the local assembly of believers, but those believers really don't, you know, well, you know, they're just kind of there to encourage each other. They really don't have no vital role in society. And so people have made all of these observations and even to the point where they're saying that in a matter of years, the church as we know it will be extinct and unheard of. Now, some of those observations people are making, but they're reaching a wrong conclusion. The church was ordained by our Lord to be the instrument to carry on his ministry once he ascended. The church is vital, not only in society, but it is vital in our Christian lives and it is vital in the cause of Christ. But I think the reason people are making those observations, reaching a wrong conclusion, is because some of them have forgotten what is the purpose of the church. You know, if you go to the New Testament and you were to list everything that the church is to do, there's a lot of different words that we might use to describe what the church does. We would probably say things like, well, we're to come together to worship, certainly, and we are to fellowship, certainly. But if you take everything the New Testament teaches the churches to do, I think you can put it in one of three categories. Evangelism, discipleship, and ministry. Now, evangelism is not just evangelism at home. It is evangelism around the world. So I would take the concept of missions and put under that. But our mission is to share with people who don't know Christ their need for salvation. And yet today, evangelism is not a priority in many churches. As a matter of fact, I go to churches now where the pastors tell me, we haven't had a baptism in years. And I talk to the pastor, why do you think that's the case? Well, it's just not important to us anymore. And then I go to other churches who tell me, we're an evangelistic church, but they're not reaching their communities and they're not reaching people for Christ. And then I'm in those churches and sometimes I see why, because you see, the devil wants to get us so sidetracked with other things, we miss the most important. Many of you know we do a lot, and our ministry does in New England. And if you ever go to New England, try to find time to ride along the coast of Maine. Now, it's not a coast like we have in Florida with beautiful sandy beaches. The coast is, is mostly cliffs. It's very jagged rocks. And, and as a result of that, if you know the history of that area, you know that for many years there were lots of shipwrecks that occurred back in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And there's one particular area in Maine where there's a historic lighthouse. And if you ever go there, you can read this story on the wall of how the people came together in the early 1800s in that community after several ships had crashed against the rocks. And they decided they would put together a committee to build a lighthouse. So the whole community came together and built the lighthouse and much to their joy as the lighthouse would send out the warning light, the ships could 
not get caught in the current and crash against the rocks. And everybody was proud of the lighthouse. Well, a few years passed and some people said, we need to build a community center here. And times were hard. They didn't have a lot of money. And somebody said, well, why do we need to build a community center? The base of the, the lighthouse is so big. We can just clean it out, do a little work in it, and they'll, we'll make it a community center. And that's what they did. The base of the lighthouse became the community center. And before long, they had a women's committee who was, you know, developing dances and, and things they could do as a community. And people got married there. And people would often come together to have anniversaries there and celebrations. And the lighthouse, the community center, the base of the lighthouse became the center of the community. Everybody loved the lighthouse. Until one December night, when the word went through town that the ship, a ship had crashed into the rocks and they needed everyone to try to rescue what people they could. And so the people went trying to rescue the people. And after they rescued as many as they could and many were lost, people said, how could this happen? We've gone for over 50 years without any ships crashing against the rocks. How could it happen? And it was then they realized that the light in the old lighthouse had gone out. And nobody noticed. I fear sometimes in our churches, when we're trying to get our softball teams together and get our community dinners together, and we're trying to do all the things we do in church, I wonder, has anybody noticed the lighthouse of evangelism has gone out? And it may be the reason why people are not being saved and being baptized. But wait, it's not just evangelism. No, you see, I grew up in an area when, boy, you wanted to reach as many as you could, and when, once you got them baptized, well, we forgot about them. No, once they're baptized, we are to disciple them and to teach them and mentor them and how to walk with the Lord. But can I tell you, if you want to know if a church has failed in evangelism, all you really have to do is look and see how many people they've reached. It's almost an instant response if we fail in evangelism. But listen to me tonight. If we fail in discipleship, we will not know it for a generation. And if you wonder sometimes why we have problems in the church that we have today, it is because of what we sowed 20 years ago and 25 years ago. Because what we teach people today as young believers, they will be leaders tomorrow. And we must not fumble the ball in discipleship. If we do, we will lose a generation. But it's not just discipleship, it's ministry. Do you know the church is called to be the arms and the feet and the heart and the eyes of Jesus in a community? It has been said many times, but it's true. People will not know how much, or will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. A little town in Vermont, there is a church that they were so hostile to them, and that's just part of the culture there. And the church was trying to build a building, and some people in the church knew that the local fire department was also trying to raise money to buy a Jaws of Life, the device that can free people from vehicles. 
And they, after much prayer, decided that they wanted to make a statement to their community, and they gave the money they raised to the fire department to buy the jaws of life. And they did it so the community would know we cared. And the mayor of the town had been so hostile to them. He did not want them there until the first person freed from the jaws of life was his daughter. And suddenly his attitude and the whole community changed. Now that's just one simple example, and there are many. But until we let people know we care, they will not hear our message. We're called to be the hands and the feet and the eyes of Jesus in the community. So what is the church called to do? It's evangelism, it's discipleship, it's ministry. But wait, anytime you start doing that, the devil raises his ugly head. So if you want to talk about the purpose of the church, maybe we need to talk about some problems in the church. I'm convinced the devil's got a fourfold strategy he tries to use in churches. One of them doesn't find this very effective in the South or hasn't been in the past. And all of these I call the isms. He tries liberalism. If he can get people to deny the Bible, if he can get people to, to no longer believe in heaven and hell, then he has destroyed the church. I mentioned New England and New England, the land that we had the two great spiritual awakenings that gave us Jonathan Edwards and some of the great meetings of George Whitfield. You go there today, it's a barren land. Less than 2% of the population of the six New England states will tell you they believe in a biblical born-again experience. If it was a separate country, those six states in our union would be an unreached people group. But what happened? Once churches that were thriving, everybody was involved, and great revivals go back to the 1920s. Go back to the days when Harvard moved away from the Bible, and, and Princeton started in the early 1900s, and they began to produce preachers who did not believe the book. And before long, the people didn't believe the book, and the churches began to close. Liberalism will destroy a church. But you say, well, but Phil, this is the South. We believe the book. I got you. So the devil tries plan number two. If liberalism doesn't work, he'll try traditionalism. He'll just try to keep you doing the same thing over and over and over and over. Hoping maybe this time it'll work. I don't know if you've ever read the definition of insanity. But insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting a different result. Now, I'm not a person who's totally against traditionalism. I think there's a lot of wonderful things we do that are traditional. But I believe everything we do needs to be evaluated whether or not it is fulfilling what the church is called to do. Because there are some things we do today, when they started, there was a good reason they did it. I'll give you one example. You know why most churches traditionally have church at Sunday school at like 9 30, 10 o'clock, and church at 11? You do the research. It's easy to see because most people in the South lived on a farm and you had to milk the cows and you had to do the chores and feed the hogs before you went to church. But now most of us don't feed hogs and milk the cows, and yet we're still meeting at 10, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe if you just stop and see why, you'll discover there's a better way. I heard the other day about a young girl who was learning to cook with her mother, and they were going to cook a ham. 
And her mother took out a knife and cut off this end of the ham and took a knife and cut off this end of the ham and threw those two pieces of ham away. And her daughter said, Mama, why did you do that? That looks like good ham. She said, Honey, I do that because that's the way my mother did it. So the little girl went to see her grandmother and said, Grandmother, uh, Mama was going to cook a ham and she cut off the end of the ham and this end of the ham and she said she did it because you did it. Tell me, Grandmother, why did you cut off the ends of the ham? She said, Oh, honey, that's simple. Because my mother did it. Well, her great-grandmother was living and she went to see her and she's at the nursing home and said, great-grandmother, I want to ask you a question. Sure, honey, what is it? Mama cooked a ham, cut off the ends. Grandmother cooks a ham, cut off the ends. They said they did it because you did it. Why did you cut off the ends of the ham? She said, because honey, your great-granddad and I were poor and I only had one pan to cook the ham and if I didn't cut off the ends, it wouldn't fit in the pan. You realize how much ham has been wasted <laughs> because we're still trying to do it like great-grandma did it? I think the test of anything we do in church is does it fulfill what we're called to do? That lady the other night was so upset in the church. She said, oh, I want you to talk to our preacher. We're not having a Christmas Eve service this year. I said, well, I hate to hear that, but I'm sure that she said, oh, it's terrible. It's just ruined my life. And I said, well, did you look forward to that every year? She said, oh, I haven't been in 30 years, but I just think they ought to have it. <laughs> See, sometimes our traditions can become almost sacred if we're not careful. And the devil will keep you doing the same thing that's not effective to keep you from being the church. But then if that doesn't work, then he'll try what I call humanism. See, the idea, we can do it on our own. We don't need God. It's the reason why in our churches today, we will spend more time talking about marketing than we do praying. It's the reason why in our churches today, we can get people to come out for a church softball game, but try to get them to go to door to door and share the gospel. You see, we've come to the place, I'm afraid, in church today, we have said to God, God, you've got a good deal having us even on your team. Rather than saying, Lord, we can't do it without you. Amen. Friend, listen, I'm, I'm seeing so much in our churches today. We have not seen such a touch of God. If it happened in some of our churches, it'd scare them to death. Because what is God doing in your church that your people cannot explain? That's when you know God's showing up. Amen. And then if that doesn't work, the devil tries the fourth one. He only has four because the fourth one works when the other three don't. And I call it materialism. You ever notice when we're talking about individuals, our church, when we're poor and struggling, boy, we cried out to God. But then we get money, nice buildings, nice gymnasiums, all the material things take away from our walk with God. My father, who's in heaven tonight, Worked at the paper mill at Cortland. He was champion, became international, but he worked there for years. And there was a young man in the church where I grew up who was there every time the doors opened, a young man who loved God, loved Jesus. But he had come from a pretty rough background and he and his sweet wife was involved. And he came to my dad one day and he said, would you help me? I, I'm trying to get a job at the paper mill. Would you help me? 
Would you at least pray with me? My dad said, I'll pray with you about that. I'll be glad to put in a good word for you. My dad wanted to help that young man. He went and he talked to some people and the young man got a job. Wasn't long before they weren't coming on Wednesday night, then every other Sunday night, then maybe once a month. Because you see now, he had a little money. They had a motor home and a boat and they had to go to the lake and had to go camping. And before long, they got out of church. And my daddy, if you knew my dad, you would know him. My dad went to see him and he said, man, I'm so glad you got that job. He said, oh, I tell you, that was an answer to prayer. My dad said, well, I just wanted to come tell you that I'm, I'm praying for you still, but now I'm praying you'll get fired. <laughs> the young man said, why? He said, because God needs to take you back to where you were financially to get you back where you need to be spiritually. Now, I'm pleased to tell you, God used that conversation to bring brokenness in that young man's life. And he and his wife are active in church today. But see, my dad understood what some of us don't. Materialism will keep you from the things of God. But I don't want to leave you depressed tonight. So I want to give you a third point. I want you to see the potential of the church. You know, when I read this verse, and I preached this for years, because I grew up in the area when we were fighting the communists. So here's the way I preached it. Folks, I'm going to tell you, the communists are going to come, the terrorists are going to come, but we, the church, we can just huddle together and they can't destroy us. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus did not make a defensive statement. He made an offensive statement. Jesus said when the church decides to do what the church is to do and they go in the power of the Holy Spirit, the gates of hell cannot stop us. That's what he said. Now, you believe that. I preach that. I've said that. But several years ago, Debbie and I were in South Dakota for a pastor's retreat. Some of you remember John Sullivan, who was from Florida. He was one of the preachers and I was preaching. And at the retreat... Uh, they decided to encourage all these pastors from the Northwest, which that too is a very difficult area of our country. And so they, they picked these pastors who could, God had done something unusual in their church and they'd just stand up and give a word of testimony. And I remember this couple got up and said, we just want to share with you what God's doing in our church. And I'll never forget, they said they were from a place called Jeffrey City, Wyoming. And then they went on to tell us about that little town. It was a mining town. The mine closed years ago. Most of the homes were just boarded up. Everybody moved away. And today, the only thing in that little town, they said, was the First Baptist Church and the only Baptist Church theirs and the post office. That's it. No store. She said, we have to drive over 50 miles to buy a gallon of milk. We have to drive over 80 miles to buy groceries. She said, when we go, you have to buy plenty of gasoline because there's no way to buy gasoline. But in that little town, they had about 50 or 60 people come. Of course, the pastor said that's the only thing to do in town unless you want to go down to the post office and look at the wanted posters. That's about all it is to do. And so people came to their church. But one of those old miners who didn't move away was gloriously saved, and the pastor started discipling him and working with him. And one Wednesday night, they were doing this study called Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. 
And, and this old miner stood up and said, Preacher, I got a prayer request. What is it? I want us to pray that God will let our church touch the world. Well, you know what that preacher said when he preached worth his pay, what he said, well, we're already touching the world. Part of our money goes to missions and we're supporting missionaries. Oh, preacher, I knew that. That's not what I mean. I want our church to touch the world. Well, we'll pray with you about that. Next Wednesday night, he said it again. Preacher just kind of ignored him. And then the next Wednesday night, he said, this lady said, you know, God's put that on my heart. I, I want us to pray with that brother that God will let our little church touch the world. Well, then you know what a preacher worth his salt would have done. Well, let's just all join in and pray that our church touch the world. Now, the preacher didn't believe that, but he didn't want to discourage his people. But let's just pray that our church touch the world. They prayed that for weeks, months, almost a year. The pastor said one day a county deputy pulled up at his church, and when he got out, he said, uh, Pastor, do you have a moment I can talk to you? And he said, sure, what is it? He said, well, we have a problem out here. Uh, in this part of Wyoming because a lot of rich kids from the east, at, at the eastern United States and from all over Europe, they will come to the western United States in the summer and ride their bicycles all over the west. And they often come into our town thinking there's a place to eat or stay when the weather's bad and we don't have a place. And I was just wondering, would you be willing to maybe open the basement of the church that if weather's bad, they can stay in your church? And he said, oh, sure, officer, we'll, we'll do that. That's not a problem. So over the course of that summer, they brought two or three, maybe five or six, and they, his little wife would cook them something, and they would talk to him. But these are kids from Europe, from the East. They're not interested in God, not interested in anything spiritual. But they'd be nice. They'd give them a Bible, and they'd be on their way. They did that for two or three summers. And he said, then one day this car pulled up, and this fella got out, and he said, I'm so glad you're here. He said, do you remember me? The pastor said, no, I, I don't think I do. He said, well, preacher, you don't remember this, but three years ago, my buddy and I, we were from Chicago, we were riding our bicycles across the West, and it was going to be stormy, so they brought us to your church to spend the night. Your wife cooked some soup for us, and you sat and talked to us, but I wasn't interested in anything spiritual, but you gave us a Bible, and I spent the rest of that summer laying under the stars reading that Bible. And when I went back to Chicago for my final part of my med school he said, my partner was a believer, so I asked him a lot of questions, and by the time that I'd graduated, I'd given my heart to Jesus. And he said, I, I, I was asked to join this group of doctors, and I'm a surgeon with them, but he said, God's just blessed me so much financially, but he said, I, I've always remembered your church. And he said, I, I wanted to come back, I want to give your church some money, but, but pastor, I got to thinking, what a blessing it was to me. He said, do you mind if I put a little ad in these magazines that I know these kids are reading that if they are going across Wyoming and if they need a place to stay and if they need something to eat, they can come stay at your church. And the pastor said, sure, we, we don't mind. The next summer, police pulled up and said, we got a problem. What is it? Look outside. 184 people on bicycles with a magazine ad. We can stay here. And the pastor had to call everybody in the church, bring what food you got. The next day, they had over 100. The next day, there was 40. The next day, there were 80. And so they had to organize it. They got a mission team to put in a shower so they could take a shower. And every night, they would feed them the meal and share the gospel with them. 
But then that pastor stood there with tears streaming down his cheeks, and he said, we've been doing that now for the last few years. And he said, i got to tell you, on the map in the basement of my church, we've got a map of the world, and every time somebody gives their heart to Jesus from a different country or a different state, we put a pin up there. And he said, I need to tell you all that we just put up our 81st pin on that map. <laughs> Hang on. Still 50 miles to buy meals, still 80 miles to buy groceries in a place that most people couldn't find if they got lost. But that little church is touching the world. You know why? Because they believe what Jesus said, that if we stop making excuses and we start going forward, the gates of hell cannot stop us. So let me ask you, how far do you drive to buy groceries? How far do you go to buy milk? Well, then what's your excuse? Because if we will be the church God calls us to be, will we keep the priorities right and we avoid the problems, we have the potential to change the world. This is Doug Ferris, and I'm blessed to be the pastor here at Underwood Baptist Church. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. It's our prayer that you'll do more than listen to the sermon or gather religious information. We want you to encounter God, and we pray that He will impact your life. If you'd like to contact us for any reason, please go to our website at underwoodbaptist.org. All our contact information is there, and we look forward to hearing from you. I hope you are blessed by today's message.